Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is this is Talk the Talk, and I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we hope to be joined soon by East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. It is Mayor's Monday on WHMP's Talk the Talk. And this Monday we were lucky to have scheduled East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. She is not with us, delayed, I hope, just briefly at the moment. I will tell you nonetheless, Buzz and Dan, how I was going to start the interview with uh, the mayor. And it was along the lines of, it is Mayor's Monday. We have on the first Mayor's Monday, the mayor of Northampton, uh, Gina Lichera. On the second Monday, the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. And on the third Monday, the mayor of East Hampton, Nicola Chappelle. And on the fourth Monday, uh, the mayor of Greenfield, Roxanne Wiedegartner. This being the third Monday, we were, well, Timing is everything in media, and we were scheduled to have Nicola Chappelle, are scheduled to have Nicola Chappelle with us. Uh, and I was going to say to the mayor, it's been a month, we haven't spoken to you. Has anything interesting <laughs> happened in East Hampton that we should know about? No, nothing uh, interesting. Yeah, so uh, we do hope to be joined by the mayor, as I said. But let's take a look at the most recent headline on this story from East Hampton from Saturday's Daily Hampshire Gazette, again by Emily Thurlow, who is the staff writer for the Gazette, who has been covering this story since its inception, with the headline, Super Candidate Withdraws After Students Raise Objections. Let me share a few, and then here are some of the questions that arise from the reporting. First, the subhead, Mayor Mum, about nature of complaint, Negotiations with second candidate offered job had been expected Friday, last Friday. <clears throat> well, I want to ask whether the mom mayor... Were you mum? <clears throat> whether the mayor is... It's, it's springtime and she's engaging, raising mums. But I'd, <laughs> I, I'd like to know whether the mayor can share more with us uh, this story. Superintendent finalist Erica Fajinski-Stark has withdrawn her candidacy after city students... That's apparently students in East Hampton, voiced concerns about the Ludlow educator to Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. That's interesting. Uh, Raising the question, the obvious question, what were the concerns? And I don't know if we can or can't know that or if it can or can't be revealed. It seems to me that a letter to the mayor from... uh, citizens, uh, residents, anyone for that matter, is a public record. I would think so. And therefore, there's no reason why it can't be shared. Whether or not the contents are accurate per se, that's one thing. But to say here are the... And the names of the kids might not be disclosable. That's true. Uh, As students, maybe. But I'm way less concerned about a possible redaction of a student's name. I want to know what's in the letter. And I think that the letter should be disclosed. Uh, I wonder why it hasn't been, or maybe it has been, it just hasn't been reported yet. Okay, let's go on with the story from Saturday's Daily Hampshire Gazette. The mayor, a member of the school committee, told the Gazette that students sent a letter this week to the mayor's office highlighting concerns with Fajinski Stark, but did not go into details as to what those concerns were. Those concerns are going to come out sooner rather than later. It's time they came out, I think. La Chapelle said, going on with the story again from 
the Daily Hampshire Gazette of this past Saturday, LaChapelle said she had responded to the letter, saying it was a matter she would be looking into immediately, that's in quotes, and reached out to school committee chairperson Cynthia Kwasinski. I should note that the mayor in East Hampton, under the charter, sits on the school committee, but is not the chair of the school committee and doesn't preside at the meetings of the school committee. Nonetheless, as I understand, is a voting member of the school committee. Uh, Mayor, I guess, being sort of the first among equals on the school committee, except, of course, she's not elected to the school committee. She holds the position as a school committee member by virtue of her office as mayor. An interesting twist on how various charters deal with mayor's relationship with the school committee. In Northampton, the mayor also sits on the school committee, I believe. In Greenfield. And chairs the school committee here, I believe, as well. So here's a little bit more from the Gazette story. Thursday night, Kuzinski contacted Vijinsky Stark. That's the second person to be offered the job as superintendent, or not offered the job, but to be designated as a person to negotiate with for the job of superintendent of the East Hampton schools, and said, let's read that sentence so I have it accurate. Thursday night, Kuzinski, the chair of the East Hampton School Committee, contacted Vijinsky Stark, the person to whom the negotiate with whom the negotiations were going to go forward for the superintendency, the concerns raised by students and indicated that the committee would be investigating the matter further. Vijinsky Stark, uh, and that goes on to give her current position and state more about it, and this the sound of an actual newspaper being folded. Uh, so this goes on to say that the email signed by Kwasinski was distributed from current East Hampton superintendent, and, and it goes on to say the email stated the next steps would be discussed at a school committee meeting. This committee will detail what the plan is going forward, and it also says that the uh, most recent candidate to be offered not offered or to be engaged in negotiations, not quite sure how to put this, uh, with the school committee uh, had withdrawn her candidacy for the position. And then the article goes on to recap what happened with the previous person with whom the school committee was engaged in negotiations for the superintendency, uh, that being uh, Vito Perone. And of interest... Before this past Monday's virtual meeting, again quoting from the Gazette article, Perone's attorney, James B. Winston, submitted a letter to the school committee reiterating Perone's interest in becoming the superintendent of the city schools. Uh, well, <laughs> if you can't be with the one, one you love the first time, the second time, maybe you want to go back to, to the first one you loved uh, or didn't quite love. It was four to three to offer Vito Perón the job. That was the most unenthusiastic vote I've seen for a superintendent. And then it was five to two not to resume negotiations with uh, Perón over the job on last Monday. So the article goes on to say uh, Winston, that's Perón's attorney, is hopeful that there is a way to quote, get back on track. Quote, I mean, there may be some hurt feelings, maybe on both sides right now, but as a lawyer, I've seen stranger things. He, Winston, the attorney, James B. Winston, the attorney for Vito Perón, said, I've seen stranger things. Perhaps given what we found today with the other candidate that was offered the job withdrawing her name, maybe there is that opportunity. 
He goes on to say, so I don't know if things could be fixed, but from my perspective, because of the outpouring of support from the community, I would be... Oh, I'm sorry, this is not from the attorney. This is from Perone uh, himself. He says this, my apologies. Perone said he has not received any other communication from the committee, quote, so I don't know if things could be fixed, but from my perspective, because of the outpouring of support from the community, I would be a fool to walk away without even attempting to put my hand out, Perone said. So that's where we are with the Gazette's reporting on this. I wonder whether it was an outpouring of support from the community or whether it was uh, the, the question about the microaggressive use of the word ladies was really what resulted in an outpouring. Okay, so I think that's interesting. There, I think, were something like 1,000 people who tuned in from to the East Hampton School Committee meeting, uh, the, the last one, uh, people from across the country. Some tuned in from across the world, the globe, uh, is obviously the story about the use of the words ladies, and some people think it's a microaggression, and many do not. It's not a given that it's a microaggression, although uh, obviously it's also a perfectly valid uh, reaction to say and to think and to feel that it was. Um, a lot of dispute about that, a lot of controversy, um, and I think that in context, whether it was a microaggression or not, it was actually pretty informal and inappropriate for a negotiation with a school committee uh, to be just addressing uh, individuals who you don't know well, who are about to be your employers, hopefully, from your point of view, and to address them in that way. I, I think that was really was unprofessional. But, um, uh, and to sign it veto, um, well, maybe it's, it's pretty familiar for a, a, a direct negotiation for a job you don't have, I think. That said, the East Hampton School Committee then withdrew from the negotiations and said, we're done. We're not going to offer you. Again, that was a five to two vote. It was. It was a I formal don't, vote. Was yeah. that, that was reported? That was reported. Okay. So uh, it, part of the difficulty in, this, in reporting on this story is that what happened was in uh, executive session, uh, and that means that under the open meeting law, that means that uh, what is said in executive session remains in ex executive session and can't be reported. What has to be reported when a governmental body comes out of his executive session is what action, if any, the body took. But the actual discussions, the content of what happened in executive session is not open and is not can't, can't be revealed. It would be a violation of the open meeting law to do that. So it's a little dicey to find out what had what happened at that meeting and who said what. I don't think that actually, well, we can ask, but we can't, can't be answered. Am I right about that, Buzz? Well, it can't be answered. I, I do want to point out that we invited, I think, twice by email, uh, twice by voicemail, once by uh, text, uh, the chair of the East Hampton School Committee, Cynthia Krasinski, to come on the show and talk about that uh, within, you know, to the extent that uh, she's not constrained uh, by the invasion of an executive session, but um, she never responded. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to condemn her for doing that. She was in a very difficult position, but uh, we did want to just get some answers that I think people would love to hear. To the extent that she can answer them, um, 
this would not be the first time that a media person's uh, request was not responded right. to. Um, so what I, do you do? And, and I was I, I I I was thrilled that the mayor was coming on this morning. I'm a little disappointed. I don't quite know what the difficulty is, but uh, maybe we'll hear from her in the next few minutes. Yeah, she's always been um, very willing to come on and talk honestly. I I don't. I'm not quite sure what the school committee does. Does it start again, look for new candidates? My understanding was there was a total of four finalists that were um, considered for the job. I thought there were three. You thought there were three? And I think that the answer to that, at least uh, officially, is this. This is a quote from the mayor, again, in Saturday's Gazette. The committee will detail what the plan is going forward at the next meeting, LaChapelle said the next meeting will be held virtually and is tentatively scheduled for Tuesday, April 25th at 6 p.m. Hmm. Really, really a difficult situation for the city of East Hampton, I think. It just makes the school, school committee and students and teachers and educators' lives really difficult. Um, and who has to be in the middle of a national firestorm about the word ladies and how it was used and whether it is disqualifying. And then, of course, we should note that morphed into what you said, Buzz, which is there's got to be more to the story. And then the next story that came out is, yeah, there was a lot more to this story because it wasn't the only thing or even necessarily the primary thing that was uh, viewed as a negative with regard to Vito Perón's candidacy for that job, uh, there was the question of uh, his asking for 40 days of sick time or le- of uh, 40 days of time off for, uh, I yeah, guess, for sick, sick time. Yeah, sick time and then 35 more days, I think, for vacation. I thought it was 30, was, but okay. Whatever. But, yeah, I, uh, I yeah, I mean, it was a request to be able to take up to 70 days off, and he said, well, I wouldn't have used it all. Um, well, he apparently was on Rock 102. He was interviewed on Rock 102. and he, when, when was that? I think this morning. Dan, do we know? Yeah, there, uh, a recording was sent on Friday to, to WHMP that, okay. that he did. I just, I just learned it from Jess Tyler, who does our news in the morning. Um, <clears throat> I did not hear it, uh, but Jess Tyler um, informed us that he, he, he explained the lady's thing. He said it might have been a mistake. I didn't mean to be uh, microaggressive. But then he said, I thought I was involved in a negotiation, and I was told we may not negotiate on salary. Our salary offer is the only one that's going to be made to you. However, we can negotiate sick time, personal days, and vacation. So he thought by throwing out those large numbers that he was beginning a discussion, and he was starting high and then would whittle it down. That's apparently what he said. Yeah, but why would you start a discussion with something that's completely wrong, inappropriate, a total non-starter? That's just not a good faith negotiation. That's just uh, many potential adjectives here, but uh, goofy goofy would be a generous one. Goofy. Well, the vote went then from four to three in favor of offering into let's withdraw it. Well, they withdrew it, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more. I think we want to talk about Justice Clarence Thomas if we can't have the mayor on with us. We'll be right back. Let the warm summer breeze drift through your window. Ba, 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 ba. Sleep late, man. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. There are moments when the beauty in nature arrests us, and we must look or listen very closely. These moments are so fleeting. How do we keep these moments of wonder alive? That's a question the poems in Mary Pfister's new collection wrestle with, but don't fully answer, hence the title, Quick to Bolt. Mary Pfister reads from Quick to Bolt at Broadside Bookshop Wednesday, April 26th at 7 p.m. Quick to Bolt is a delight. Be there as Mary Pfister brings these poems to life, Wednesday, April 26th at the Broadside. Cheddar. It's not just a cheese, it's a place. It all started in the 12th century, in the caves of the English village of Cheddar. In the caves, the temperature and humidity made it the perfect place to mature a cheese. Imagine having to go spelunking for Cheddar. Now, it's easier. They still make Cheddar in Cheddar, but now they make it in Scotland, Ireland, California, Oregon, and Cummington. If you like cheddar, you better get a cheddar at State Street in Northampton or Cooper's Corner in Florence. So much easier than cave digging. Oh, they've got cheddar from jolly old England, but they have natural cheddar with porter from Ireland. They've got cloth-bound cheddar from Grace Hill in Cummington, an award-winning organic cheddar from Robinson Farm in Hardwick. Where better to get a cheddar made right here in Western Mass than right here in Western Mass at State Street in Cooper's, your cheddar headquarters. But enough with the cheesy puns. You deserve cheddar than that. Don't go all the way to Cheddar, England to get a cheddar. Get your cheddar at State Street in Northampton and Cooper's in Florence. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And on this Mayor's Monday, we are indeed joined by the Mayor of East Hampton, Nicole LaChapelle. Mayor, we've been speaking about, Buzz and I and Dan have been discussing the situation involving the offering offerings of jobs to uh, candidates mm -hmm. for the East Hampton superintendent of school. From your perspective, where does this stand now? So we have a meeting uh, on April 25th at 6 o'clock where the um, school committee will discuss what the next steps are. Um, and there, you know, I honestly don't know what will happen, but we'll – uh, discuss what's happened and where the, dis the district goes from here. In the Gazette article of Saturday, there is a quote from uh, Vito Perone's attorney and from Vito Perone himself saying, I don't know if things could be fixed, but from my perspective, because of the out outpouring of support from the community, I'd be a fool to walk away without even attempting to put my hand out, uh, Perone said. Uh, do you have any response to that that you would care to make? I mean, there's a clear process to hire a superintendent, and we're following that process. Um, Dr. Perone offering to put a handout or whatnot, I'm, I'm not sure where that comes from. I would think that the doctor knows a process to hire a superintendent. He's been through it, um, and we've gone down that road. So on the 25th, there's a conversation to had amongst the school committee 
um, where we go as far as uh, process and um, applicants, uh, you know, a possibility is certainly a new search and how that search would happen, the process. On the 25th, we'll just be talking about next steps, not defining any process or decisions. Um, because again, you, we, you know, if it's a new search, we start over. Uh, if we talk to other candidates, then that would be a vote of the committee. So the committee has to decide whether or not to uh, engage further with either one of these two, two previous candidates or whether or not to go forward with the new search. That's going, that's going to be the decision to be made next Tuesday? Yeah, and there's also a third candidate. Oh, right, right. Um, or whether to engage so, with the third candidate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got a couple of choices in front of us, and certainly uh, public uh, weighing in. Um, does have some impression, of course, uh, but we have to ultimately do what's best for the department and look forward, um, and we'll we'll see where the committee goes. Let me ask you this. In the Gazette on Saturday, it says that you were uh, mum with regard to the uh, letter you received from students about the superintendent finalist Erica Fajinski-Stark. Can you tell us mm-hmm. anything more about what the students complained about? At, at this point, um, I cannot. Uh, we're still kind of wrapping up the um, just the steps that we do when we get the concerns. I think it's, um, you know, students brought it forward, um, acted immediately, uh, talked it through with the chair of the committee, and um, and then the chair of the committee um, followed up with a uh, candidate, and that was um, directly affected Dr. Stark. And what I had mentioned and Buzz agrees with is that the letter itself is a public record. It's something written to the mayor, and therefore, I mean, there may be some reasons why it isn't properly disclosed now, but... Do you believe it will be disclosed, that your office will disclose this letter at some point? Absolutely. Um, And we've gotten a couple of requests. I sent it just quickly um, back to a legal review. I just want to make sure that the students are um, exactly what can be redacted or not, just out of uh, caution for the students to put the email forward and also their ages. So you expect with redactions that the letter from the students will be released soon? Can you tell us when? Um, I think as early as tomorrow. I mean, I would expect I have an email in my box now just uh, covering as far as releasing a record that's from students and age of majority and whatnot. Um, so there's a chance it won't be redacted. I'm I'm going to follow legal advice. Okay, so that goes to when you say legal advice. That goes to the East Hampton School Committee's attorney for review? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Mayor, as well as the city attorney. There will be a, a review of both. But Mayor, this, because it, it crosses the line of it's a school committee matter, but it's also um, a city personnel matter. Right. Because it affects the hiring. Yeah. Always a difficult uh, tension between those two. This is Buzz, yeah. Mayor. Uh, I'm wondering what's the takeaway. What have we learned about the way to... That to screen candidates for something as important as a school superintendent position. Um, and I, I can't help but think 
according to the reports we've read, when the decision was made to offer him the job and to authorize negotiations, it was on a four to three vote, which sounds kind of narrow, um, a narrow level of support. What do you think we've learned? What could be done better to avoid this kind of confusion in the future? Well, I think one on the vetting process, we have to look at what the vetting process includes um, as far as certainly professional record and a, a background check uh, similar to a, a Corey, but also uh, do a better sweep um, on the internet and social media. And I mean, that's a gray area of, of what gets picked up and what doesn't and what forms um, opinions, questions, decisions, and figuring out how to work that into um, an interview process and the background check as a candidate comes into uh, interview process, most certainly when uh, we're getting down to finalists. Well, that said, uh, 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 Vito Perone had been the principal of the East Hampton High School. Uh, he, mm-hmm. he was, uh, I would suspect, known to a lot of members of the community who probably had uh, opinions with regard to whether he was successful or not successful and what his superintendency would look like in view of how he, uh, how he was, how he acted, how he performed as, as principal. So I'm not sure why more views... Uh, on social media would have given this school committee more information that would be useful? Um, I should make the distinction between Dr. Perone's um, offering Dr. Perone the, the job and what happened um, there from Dr. Stark. So, I mean, I look at Dr. Perone's clearly isn't as much uh, vetting as uh, the interview process and then negoti- following negotiations um, during executive session, uh, there was uh, a couple of streams of conversation um, around what he was expecting and uh, what the committee, you know, could not provide. It was surprising that Dr. Perone uh, came in with the offer that he did that was disclosed publicly by him after uh, we did not come to terms in negotiation. Uh, it was extremely high, and the, and the terms um, we thought were not in line of what we wanted our next superintendent to have in a contract, never mind what the, the department could afford. We made it very plain in our job posting, and uh, Dr. Pro came up with a different offer that was completely not in line with uh, the expectations in the job description. Going back to uh, Buzz's question, uh, I, I would like to know whether or not the uh, take-home here is really related to the process um, or there is something else at play. In other words, the process seems to be uh, pretty in line or in line with what every school committee search that I've known about uh, for the superintendent principal, and I've seen a lot of them, uh, didn't seem very different. But this somehow really, this train fell off the tracks. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts that you can share or are willing to share at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it was surprising when we, it, you're right, the steps are the same as far as, like, especially at the end of the prone search and taking in, in negotiations 
it's in executive session, which means it is um, confidential until the matter is is uh, comes to an end, and then there are executive session notes that were issued um, or will be issued. It was breathtaking that Dr. Perone won um, in, in between uh, the first session, executive session, and the and then after when we had actually offered him the job, he put his offer um, forward as a public document. And then to walk into executive session and him, you know, his response to feedback from the committee and then, you know, really being surprised when um, his offer, like in his offer, he, he wants what's equal to 14 weeks off for a superintendent. And we're looking for a full-time superintendent. You know, we, we want somebody who's on the ground, as uh, the doctor said in his interview, and it was very surprising in that offer that came on Wednesday that he sent it to public record of, of what his, you know, his, his three main expectation demands for this, this contract were negotiating. Um, so we walk in, the school committee walks into an executive session on Thursday, and there's a lot of, as we've read, um, public comment, support, uh, not support, um, you know, for the candidacy, and it focused on one word, which was really the shortest um, part of uh, the session on Tuesday. Um, I appreciate, of course, all of the public input, um, but the, you know, the question I would have, and we've talked about it uh, as a community, but also with members of the public is, you know, why would public opinion be held on one word? or a simple professional comment. I feel that you have a candidate who had said something that uh, members of the committee took exception on, and it became some kind of a platform for the public and the doctor to then go to the public with comment, knowing the school committee could not comment because it happened in executive session, and launch some kind of media tour. I, I honestly don't know what the the end game is um, for, you know, for taking up that road when Dr. Perone did that. Um, you know, a superintendent search is about finding the best educational leader for a department. We as a school committee take that very, in, very, very, very seriously. And because of the confidentiality, our hands have been, um, you know, kind of tied, uh, but also, just because a candidate gets, say, the most clicks or um, pieces in the ra- on radio and on the papers around the world, I mean, it's, it's just bizarre. I, I, I don't – the reaction to it, um, I, it's surreal. Uh, but it doesn't change how you hire and negotiate somebody, and that remains in, in, in the executive session confidential until the end. And then the, the the contract once signed signed becomes public, as well as the executive session meetings notes. So I'm when we're talking about not a public process, we follow the same one that la- other school committees have, um, and an exception is being taken around a word and um, a candidate's reaction to that. 
We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle on this Mayor's Monday. Thank you, Mayor. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Mayor. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A former Westfield teacher is facing assault charges against a kindergartner. The teacher, Brittany Smith of Westfield, was working in the Autism Spectrum Disorder Program at Paper Mill Elementary School when she allegedly pulled the child to the floor by his hair on January 12th. Two other teachers in the classroom allegedly witnessed the incident. The city superintendent of schools says he's not able to comment on a human resources matter, but did say that the teacher is no longer employed by the Westfield District Schools. Smith was arraigned on April 4th and is awaiting a June 15th hearing. Dr. Vito Perone is speaking out after his job offer as East Hampton superintendent was rescinded. Perone says in addition to using the term ladies in an email, he had been trying to negotiate for an annual cost of living adjustment and more sick days. I didn't intend to take 40 days of sick days. Right. I don't do that. However, I'm 58 years old and things happen. Yeah. And okay. if we were negotiating, that would be my request. In the intense online outrage directed at East Hampton School Committee after this highly publicized incident, some of the school committee members opposed to Perone's hiring have received threats of violence. Additional police details have been posted outside of some members' homes. On Friday, Erica Faginski-Stark withdrew from negotiations, putting the school committee back to square one in their search for a new superintendent. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation will host a public hearing on Wednesday to hear from Northampton residents about the proposed redesign of Main Street. The hearing will be held virtually on Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. To register, visit MassDOT's website. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy, chance for showers, highs 62 to 66. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 42 to 46. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny and breezy, chance for a passing shower, highs in the upper 50s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rechivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Las personas que están esperando un reembolso de impuestos podrían recibir uno más pequeño que el año pasado, y con la inflación aún alta, ese dinero no llegará tan lejos como hace un año. Los 90 millones de contribuyentes que presentaron sus declaraciones al 31 de marzo obtuvieron reembolsos que fueron un promedio de casi un 10% menos que el año pasado, en parte debido a la expiración de los programas de alivio de la pandemia. La fecha límite de presentación para la mayoría de los contribuyentes es el martes 18 de abril. El reembolso promedio es de $2,910 por debajo de $3,226, una diferencia de más de $300 según los datos más recientes del IRS. Para muchos hogares, especialmente para las familias trabajadoras, el reembolso de impuestos es la mayor ganancia inesperada financiera única del año. Y es que el impuesto sobre la renta del trabajo ampliado y los créditos tributarios por hijos durante la pandemia de COVID-19 proporcionaron muchos beneficios para las familias con niños. Más estadounidenses se dedicaron a actividades secundarias y trabajos independientes durante y desde la pandemia, por lo que pueden estar experimentando el impuesto sobre el trabajo por cuenta propia y las consecuencias de la falta de retención. Un empleador tradicional que proporciona una forma W-2 retendría impuestos de cada cheque de pago, lo que significa menos impacto potencial al final del año fiscal. Existe la posibilidad de que los reembolsos de impuestos más bajos de este año puedan debilitar el gasto de los consumidores y, como resultado, ayudar a frenar la inflación. Gracias.
Para combatir la inflación, la Reserva Federal ha estado elevando las tasas de interés para aumentar el costo de pedir dinero prestado con la esperanza de desacelerar la economía. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Looking forward to Earth Day upcoming on April 22nd. We have with us today Andrew Boyd, who is a writer, a humorist, an activist, and what he calls the CEO. That would be the chief existential officer of the Climate Clock, a global campaign that blends art, science, and grassroots organizing to get the world to a hashtag act in time. Andrew Boyd's new book is titled, I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. Andrew Boyd, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you so much for this book. I, first of all, we should tell, you, we should, we should tell our listeners, this book is actually really funny, particularly if you like <laughs> Gallows Humor, uh, but it is really funny. It is also really serious, and in order to, I think, uh, summarize in some ways what the message is, or, and there is a message in this book. Um, I was going to ask, and I would like to ask Andrew Boyd to read a couple of paragraphs for us that I had uh, selected uh, under, under a caption heading, Why It's So Hard to Hope These Days. And I don't usually start by asking for the reading, but this time I will. Andrew Boyd, would you be willing to share those with us? Yeah, uh, certainly. And, and Bill and everyone, it's a pleasure to be on the air with you. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, so the book is in many ways a um, journey in search of hope uh, and a very robust, uh, resilient kind of hope that is, you know, we will need uh, as this rest of the century unfolds uh, into a, a whole lot of trouble. So part of that job is to Uh, unpack why it is so hard to hope in a, a kind of simple, optimistic way that maybe has uh, worked for us in the past. Um, so this chapter is early in the book, why it's so hard to hope these days. And uh, Bill, thanks for asking me to read these two paragraphs. Uh, here we go. It's always hard to hope, but there are times when it's particularly hard. Our time is one of those times. We know what we need to do to prevent catastrophe. We actually do know what we need to do To prevent catastrophe. Uh, and not only are we not doing it, but even if we were doing it, it still wouldn't be enough because we really needed to start doing it 30 years ago. Uh, it's hard to hang your hope on preventing climate catastrophe as I and so many of us have and still do when there is next to no basis for actually preventing it. We can still hope in an arbitrary, disconnected from reality way. God will intervene. Science will invent some magic process. People power will somehow win the day but not in a way that feels consonant with an objective understanding of the situation. And by quote unquote objective, I don't mean a cynical rail politic, business as usual understanding of the situation. I mean the cold scientific facts of even the most optimistic scenarios. So if you're hanging your hope on preventing catastrophe, you're hanging your hope on an illusion. This is a brutally sobering realization. It's taken me years to come to terms with it and at some level i'm still failing to do so um that doesn't mean i'll just say bill that doesn't mean there's nothing worth doing that doesn't mean there's um there aren't some 
there's that there isn't some better uh, catastrophe versus a worse catastrophe, and that that better catastrophe is still worth fighting for. So, but this does set up the fact that we're in for some kind of catastrophe, and we have to come to terms with that to have a clear-eyed view of our situation. Which brings me to two of the reviews, one of which was from Kirkus, urgent, sobering reading. And this from Forward Reviews, which was a starred review for the book, the most realistic yet least depressing end of the world as we know it guide that's out there. You say there's a catastrophe coming, regardless of what we do, regardless of how much carbon is sequestered, there's a catastrophe coming. What's the least bad that we're looking at? Well, um, I mean, part of the project of the book was uh, to you know, uh, from the crisis of hope that I mentioned, going and searching of a more robust kind of hope. And I went and talked to many leading climate thinkers, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, some of you have probably heard of, uh, Joanna Macy, uh, Adrian Ree Brown, uh, Tim DeChristopher, uh, scientists, uh, uh, organizers, activists, psychologists, etc. And then we should and, note, uh, those, are, those interviews are included as part of this book. They're interspersed. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're in there in full. And I digest the wisdom that they bring and thread it into the book. And it's, it's, the book is a narrative. It's a journey that I go on, you know, in search of uh, a hope fit for purpose of the 21st century. Uh, uh, what's the better in the better catastrophe? Um, and how do we get it? Um, so one person I talked to, for example, uh, Gopal Dayaneni, one of the very leading voices in the environmental justice and then a climate justice movement based in Oakland, California, uh, his the way he understands better catastrophes, you know, his notion of um, you had to summarize it, you know, a lot of complex, lucid thought and strategizing that he does. But um, we're in uh, we're you know, we're going to suffer. Right. We're going to suffer. So his question is, how do we do, how do we distribute that suffering most equitably? So for him, uh, we get a better catastrophe by centering justice, by thinking of those who have been historically and, and ongoingly uh, most impacted and who are most vulnerable. And if we can shape our solutions in a way that uh, takes care of them as best we can, then we will all be better off. Okay, but so Andrew, Andrew, Boyd, Andrew Boyd, I, 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 mm -hmm. I just want to know, in the best scenario, you've, you've read about this, yeah. this subject, you've researched this subject, you are an expert on this subject, by virtue of all you have researched and written about, at its best, there is a yeah. coming climate catastrophe. What I want to know is, at its best, at its least destructive, mm -hmm. what are we looking at? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot, uh, and the scientists will be the first to say this, there's a lot of unknowns, right? There's some strong trajectories that we're on. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns in the earth chemistry and the biggest unknown is how we respond as a society, right? As a nation, as a, as a collection of communities. Um, so that's a big unknown, but if we respond, uh, with us, with an emergency mindset, right? If we, if we recognize this as the existential, uh, challenge, um, that it is, and we respond well, then we can limit the damage, right? So, uh, you know, the UN, for example, came out with a study last year that that said that one million species are under threat. Right. So there's a real uh, uh, 
to our our you know biodiversity is in dire uh, situation. We know that you know the um, so, but yes, you want a a scenario of the best version. The best version is unfortunately that we will permanently damage the planet uh, and learn to live uh, in a more uh, sustainable, uh, humbled, uh, sacred, respectful way with the natural world. Uh, that there are so many salute. You know, we, as we say, there are. Um, Everything's falling apart as everything's coming together, right? So uh, there are s so many solutions at hand uh, that can make uh, make our world better, can uh, make our communities more resilient to these impacts. But yes, if you if you if you want a, the best case scenario, Miami goes underwater in the best case scenario. All right, we lose uh, hundred thousand species in the best case scenario. Um, we also um, we also, you know, move our our civilization off of fossil fuels to renewables in uh, an extremely fast fashion, and in a way that creates a greater degree of uh, of energy uh, decentralization, of energy sovereignty, of cleaner uh, water and cleaner air, for example. Uh, but yeah, we are we've wrecked the coral reefs, we've melting the uh, the, the Arctic, we are um, losing. Uh, tens of thousands of species. These things are part of the best case scenario, unfortunately. Just wanted to mention, Bill, before we go on break, my brother lives in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And just last week, they had a one in a thousand year flood that destroyed the airport in Fort Lauderdale. It was uh, pretty incredible. So when I hear all of this, I think about even now what's really happening on the ground to Florida. So let me, let me ask you this before we... I just want, I, I hardly know what to say, but I do want to ask this. Are we looking at uh, massive numbers of deaths of human beings in addition to the uh, mass extinction of various forms of life on Earth? Are we looking at starvation? Are we looking at that kind of a, a disaster? Um, in a lot of, and again, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a policy geek. I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of people, read a lot of books, and written a book. So I'm that level of expert, to be fair, um, and not, not a PhD, uh, you know, trained in this for 20, 30 years kind of level of expert. So, uh, yeah, if a carbon action tracker, which is tracking the, uh, you know, up to the minute, or not up to the minute, but you know, uh, uh, in real time, the trajectory that we're on predicts 2.7 degrees centigrade warming you know we were told not and, to cross 1.5 right and we're so this yeah and this will lead to uh what's what, you know what guy mcpherson focuses on which is you know his area of expertise one of the people i interviewed in the book uh, one of the more extreme people but at habitat destruction okay so if let, let if me let me, let me let me interrupt yeah. because we need to squeeze in a break but then i want to come back and ask yeah. are sure, we sure. really looking at mass starvation i want to know the answer to that we'll be back with andrew boyd right after this Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. 
Have you ever gone swimming with a polar bear, scuba dived with crocodiles? Amos Nahom has, and his nature photography has made him the BBC's Wildlife Photographer of the Year twice. Now he's coming to Northampton's Academy of Music for an Earth Day show Saturday, April 22nd. He'll share his breathtaking images, the thrilling stories behind the photos, and his message of harmony with the natural world. Visit aomtheater.com to get your tickets today for Amos Nahom. Funded in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism and visit Hampshire County. For 50 years, the Center for Women and Community has provided trauma-informed leadership and advocacy services, including 24-hour free and confidential support for survivors and their loved ones throughout Hampshire County. April is National Sexual Assault Awareness Month. CWC is here for you. If you've been impacted by violence, call the Sexual Assault Support and Advocacy Hotline for information, support, and resources. Learn about volunteer and professional staff opportunities at umass.edu CWC. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. College tuition, a long overdue remodel. Credit card consolidation. Good ideas come to you every day. But now, with a home equity loan from Franklin First Federal Credit Union, you take ideas and make them come alive. Get a fixed rate of 5.74% APR for 20 years and gain control of your world again. Start at franklinfirst.org. Rates subject to change, membership eligibility required. Franklin First Federal Credit Union is an equal housing lender and insured by NCUA. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Andrew Boyd, whose new book is I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis with Grief, Hope, and Gallows Humor. And although the message is really, really important and quite serious, the book itself is really very funny in many, many places. And in the book, the sixth stage of, well, grief is gallows humor and includes this the Onion headline, Fall Canceled After Three Billion Season, with the subhead, A Beloved Classic Comes to an End. <laughs> you know, this, is, this is really great stuff. I, I would like to know from you, Andrew Boyd, what you see as being things that we can and should do at this point. And I love the part where you say you're talking about recycling, and this is a discussion that we had had with uh, – uh, Dr. McPherson on the show uh, a number of times, uh, where you talk about talking the talk and walking the walk, and you say that, well, yeah, I'm going to recycle and do this. It probably makes really no difference, but it's an existential uh, action on my part to do what I can and should do. Tell us what you think we can and should and must do. Yeah, um, to be, you know, so, the you know, just on the recycling bit, um, we need to do things at all levels, right? We've been told by the, the fossil fuel companies, in fact, Carbon Footprint was invented by one of the PR firms they hired in 2004 to make it feel like it's our fault, right? That it's, that and that individual consumerist behavior change is what will uh, make all the difference because they don't want to change. They want to keep making money by pulling up uh, the 
the, the poison that is wrecking our atmosphere and wrecking our future carbon and make as much money as they can before it's all over. I don't understand why they have grandchildren too. They have to breathe the same air. I don't get it, but that's, that's their business model and they're sticking to it. Um, we have to stop them. So yes, we have to recycle. We have to do all we can at the individual level, even though just for our own, as you say, our own sort of uh, personal integrity, because it's there and we can do it, but it is utterly insufficient to the task. We need system change. Uh, we need uh, massive action at the federal level. We're starting to get uh, some of it with the Inflation Reduction Act, which is uh, uh, you know, a strategic climate bill that's reworking the market economy so that it's to, to grease the wheels for the transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Um, so we need to do everything at the individual level. We need to find our people. We need to make our communities more resilient to the extreme weather that's coming. So every community needs a climate resiliency plan. That's something you can get involved with uh, locally. Uh, we need to do, uh, you know, we should, uh, we need to make, you know, join uh, more powerful movements. If you're young, join a Sunrise or 350. If you're older, join this new movement that Bill McKibben just started called Third Act. How do we use our Third Act to leave a, as good a world as we can? And we're going to, at least, at least, and, yeah. And we're going to need to leave it there. I'm sorry. Please ah. come, please come back before, before Earth Day. We really appreciate it. Andrew Boyd has been our guest. His new book available at your local independent bookstore. I want a better catastrophe. We do. Thank you so much, Andrew Boyd. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Using WIC is easier than ever. Now you can use the WIC card instead of checks for your food purchases. WIC is a free nutrition program that helps working families stretch their food budget and make healthy choices. WIC helps families learn to shop for nutritious foods and offers resources like online nutrition education and an app to make shopping easier. Visit us online at mass.gov slash WIC to find out if you qualify. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. There was another mass shooting in the U.S. over the weekend. This time, four people were killed at a Sweet 16 party in Dadeville, Alabama. Right now, hundreds of students from around the country are gathering on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. for a march next hour to demand a federal ban on assault weapons. Kitty Brantner helped organize the protest. Today, Congress is back in session, and we plan to meet them their first day back with a very strong message that we will no longer longer tolerate assault weapons in civilian hands in America. A black teenager in Kansas City, Missouri, Ralph Yarl, is fighting for his life this morning after he was shot in the head when he rang the wrong doorbell. Correspondent Lilia Luciano. Yarl was supposed to pick up his younger brothers from a friend's house on 115th Terrace in Kansas City. But she says instead he went to 115th Street, 
where he rang the bell, and that's when police say a man opened fire, shooting him in the head. Police say the person who pulled the trigger has not been charged so far. A no-go this morning in South Texas for Elon Musk's Starship that aims to take astronauts to the moon and eventually Mars. CBS's Jim Crisula. SpaceX called off its first attempt to launch its giant 400-foot Starship rocket from South Padre Island, Texas, because of a problem with the first stage booster. decision right now is that we are going to stop the launch for today. We're going to transition the launch attempt to a wet dress rehearsal. No people or satellites were aboard for the launch attempt. A judge in Delaware has just confirmed Dominion's $1.6 billion trial against Fox News has been delayed until tomorrow. Correspondent Scott McFarlane is at the courthouse. Fox has claimed Dominion's defamation suit is a political crusade and a threat to the First Amendment. In the court filings, Fox and Dominion are hundreds of millions of dollars apart on just determining the value of Dominion voting systems and the losses incurred. We've just learned 92-year-old former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick has been charged with one count of sex assault related to an incident dating back to 1977. He allegedly fondled a victim while he was staying at the family's home in Geneva Lake, Wisconsin. Volunteers needed everywhere. An AmeriCorps survey finds people signing up to donate their time dropped 7% during the pandemic, and the numbers have not rebounded. Carrie Shulman at Ronald McDonald's house in Phoenix. We are not the only organization who is facing this challenge of bringing volunteers back in. To be able to pinpoint exactly what is causing it, no one can really say. The Dow is up 23 points. This is CBS News. Streamline how you hire with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com slash credit. I'm Howard Mackler, founder of Innovation Refunds. You've heard me talking about the payroll tax refund for months. If you own a business, even if you've asked your CPA about this, you owe it to yourself to take another look. We provide a licensed and insured tax attorney who evaluates your company at my expense to determine eligibility. Businesses of all types can qualify, so go to GetRefunds.com to potentially get a payroll tax refund of up to $26,000 per employee. Download the Innovation Refunds app or go to GetRefunds.com. GetRefunds.com. Guys, fellas, men, are you Roman ready for the weekend? Right now, generic Viagra, a.k.a. Sildenafil, is just $4 per dose at Roman. Just complete a free online visit with a U.S. licensed healthcare professional. If medication is appropriate, Roman sends what you need in discreet packaging with two-day shipping. Generic Viagra from $4 at Roman. Go to ro.co slash bed. Do it today and get 20% off your entire first order. That's ro.co slash for WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A former Westfield teacher is facing assault charges against a kindergartner. The teacher, Brittany Smith of Westfield, was working in the Autism Spectrum Disorder Program at Paper Mill Elementary School when she allegedly pulled the child to the floor by his hair on January 12th. Two other teachers in the classroom allegedly witnessed the incident. The city superintendent of schools says he's not able to comment on a human resources matter, but did say that the teacher is no longer employed by the Westfield District Schools. Smith was arraigned on April 4th and is awaiting a June 15th hearing. Dr. Vito Perone is speaking out after his job offer as East Hampton superintendent was rescinded. Perone says in addition to using the term ladies in an email, he had been trying to negotiate for an annual cost of living adjustment and more sick days. I didn't intend to take 40 days of sick days. Right. I don't do that. However, I'm 58 years old and things happen. Yeah. And okay. if we were negotiating, 
That would be my request. In the intense online outrage directed at East Hampton School Committee after this highly publicized incident, some of the school committee members opposed to Perone's hiring have received threats of violence. Additional police details have been posted outside of some members' homes. On Friday, Erica Faginski-Stark withdrew from negotiations, putting the school committee back to square one in their search for a new superintendent. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation will host a public hearing on Wednesday to hear from Northampton residents about the proposed redesign of Main Street. The hearing will be held virtually on Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. To register, visit MassDOT's website. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy, chance for showers, highs 62 to 66. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 42 to 46. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny and breezy, chance for a passing shower, highs in the upper 50s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to our show. Uh, this is Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. Um, Bill, there has been uh, so much talk about this J.P. Morgan Chase Bank uh, plan to open a branch in the former Silverscape uh, building uh, right in the center of Northampton's downtown. Um, J.P. Morgan Chase wants to, according to an article by Jim Kenney that was written last fall, uh, wants to double its presence in Massachusetts by 2025. They have already opened up uh, a branch in Springfield um, at 1391 Main Street, um, and they've opened in Boston. They're opening in Worcester. They are uh, opening in Great Barrington. So they have their designs on creating far more branches of, uh, of the Chase Bank, the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank. Um, as a result, there have been uh, demonstrations at Pulaski Park in Northampton uh, that walked its way down to the big intersection intersection in the center of Northampton where uh, the Silverscape design has long been and where J Chase wants to open up. I think uh, Chase has opened the building. They're there. They're in. I, th I, I don't know if the branch is open. Really? Okay. Yeah, well, that's what I thought. Okay. Maybe I'm dated. Well, the signs are up. The, the uh, sign by the famous clock is up. Uh, the signs are all in. I don't know if it's physically open for business, but they've clearly moved in. Well, um, Quite frankly, I'm saddened to hear that. Um, these, these protests, Bill, they've been about uh, the practice of J.P. Morgan Chase of financing companies that are engaged in fossil fuel uh, exploration and development uh, at a time when uh, climate is becoming so much, uh, so dire an issue where we're seeing the effects uh, of climate change all the time, which is why I think our guest... Um, uh, right now on the phone right now from Eastern Massachusetts is such an important person for us to hear from the Union of Concerned Scientists and scientists is the operative word in that sentence um, has a climate accountability campaign that's being uh, uh, sort of directed by Director Kathy Mulvey of the Climate Accountability Campaign and in particular there is a 1300 uh, scientists signed letter that is being uh, distributed to shareholders of J.P. Morgan Chase. And I want to ask Kathy Mulvey about that. Director Kathy Mulvey, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot. Buzz. Nice to be here. So could you explain what I was just fumbling through this letter that uh, has 1,300 apparently distinguished scientists' signatures on it 
what is it asking and who is it asking it of? Yeah, well, let me, uh, I mean, you've set the, the context, right? And, and so we know from the most recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that the world is dangerously far from a path that would limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And, you know, projected carbon dioxide emissions from existing fossil fuel infrastructure are enough to exhaust the remaining carbon budget. And so that's why scientists, along with activists and shareholder activists, advocates are looking at all possible angles to uh, um, accelerate the the transition to clean, and the finance sector is a really important lever for pressure. And so, what this letter is, it relates to the the J.P. Morgan Chase annual meeting of shareholders, which is which is coming up in in May. And you know that's the that's the one chance that. Um, that the people who own shares in publicly traded companies have a chance to send strong to the decision makers. Um, and so there is a proposal um, going before shareholders that to phase out financing that includes loans, bonds, and underwriting of companies that are expanding fossil fuel production. And the J.P. Morgan Chase is recommending that its that its shareholders vote against this proposal, and scientists, 1,300 scientists, have joined with the Union of Concerned Scientists to call on shareholders to vote in favor of this proposal. In response to the demonstration that Buzz just referenced here in Northampton, a PR person from J.P. Morgan Chase came out with the statement. Oh, we we also are involved with financing of all sorts of green energy projects. And we asked a guest about that. I said, yeah, this is just greenwashing. It's not real. Is it real or is it just PR flack? You know, unfortunately, it's, it's not real. J.P. Morgan Chase is the leading financer of... Uh, fossil of companies engaged in fossil fuels since the Paris Climate Agreement. So from 2016 to 2022, J.P. Morgan um, lent and under and underwrote 434 billion dollars in financing to companies uh, in in the fossil fuel business, and that's according to a new report. That just came out last week, Banking on Climate Chaos, which looked at the world's 60 largest banks. Uh, and this found that, that these banks, you know, including and led by um, led and chase over the over the time period since the Paris Agreement, have uh, spent five and a half trillion dollars in that seven years. So it's a it's a really important resource put together by Rainforest Action Network, Bank Track the Indigenous Environmental Network, Oil Change International, Reclaim Finance, the Sierra Club, and Bergewald, and um, available on online. Really, really encourage listeners to check that out. It's, it's really powerful, the statement that so many people who are in tune with the climate and the change it is undergoing that we're all aware of. 
that so many distinguished people are coming out. I, I wanted to ask the question, is it really fossil fuel expansion that this $384 billion uh, from J.P. Morgan Chase has been spent on? That is not just what they spent supporting companies, loaning to companies, um, et cetera, that are engaged in fossil fuel development, but we're talking about expansion here by the tune of a third of a trillion dollars? Um, that, that figure is their total financing to companies that are, that are doing fossil fuel um, business. But, the, but one way that the data is, is sliced is to the top 100 companies that are expanding fossil fuels. Uh, so it also looks at, at lending to you know high risk sectors like uh, tar sands, um, the Arctic oil and gas, Am- Amazon oil and gas, coal mining, and coal power. Um, so the so the 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 figure, which was when the scientists signed the letter, was 382 billion, and is now with this updated data through 2022 is up to 434 billion. Is 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 an aggregate figure of fossil fuel finance. Taking my breath away, we're talking with Director Kathy Mulvey of the Climate Accountability Campaign at the Union of Concerned Scientists that work so hard on all of our behalf. Is this a new strategy to uh, make a proposal to shareholders at their annual shareholders meeting to try to change company policy by, by asking shareholders to force it? Is that new? You know, it is. It's a it's a long-standing uh, strategy of of socially responsible investors, uh, dating back to the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, um, and you know that's been employed on a range of of public health, human rights, and environmental issues. And in fact, just a couple of years ago, shareholders really issued wake-up calls directly to the fossil fuel companies. So there was a um, there were not only proposals around climate that won majorities at ExxonMobil and Chevron, uh, but also there was an effort, a proxy fight, um, which was an effort, um, a successful effort to take over three of the seats on the board of ExxonMobil on the basis that the company was not evolving fast enough um, for the energy transition. So I think what is new here is looking is strategies to look at other enablers of the fossil fuel industry and um, you know that includes the the finance sector JP Morgan Chase um, Bank of America Citigroup RBC and, and Wells Fargo are also facing similar shareholder proposals um, and so, you know, this is this is saying um, essentially we have to look at, at all the ways that um, that direct investors and asset um, managers can uh, send strong messages to really shift shift the economy toward toward clean energy. Um, and and you know, I mean, shareholders um, are are anyone who has the has has a pension um, or or a retirement account right and so you know surely not not everybody is is fortunate enough to have retirement savings but um, but you know in in Massachusetts our our public employees have a, a public em, um, employee you know have public pensions um, 
And so our, you know, we, we want our state treasurer to, to vote in favor of these proposals and, and for climate action, um, both directly with the, with the fossil fuel companies where those, where those shares are still held and also uh, with, the, with the financiers who enable them to continue to uh, exacerbate the climate crisis. Well, I'd like to know more about that because in terms of how the system, the economic system, the financial system works, the majority of shares, as I understand it, really are held by mutual funds. They are all these interdependent and interlocking uh, directories and social networks and financial networks, and they have, I think, uh, a really large number of shares of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and ExxonMobil and the rest, uh, and they have enormous say, those financial companies, on whether the other financial companies, and ExxonMobil, for example, is, yes, it's, a, it's, it's an energy company, but it also has billions and billions of dollars, uh, trillions of dollars of assets. I mean, h- how do the small shareholders actually influence any of this? Yeah, it's it's an important question, right? So um, Vanguard, BlackRock, for example, might be names that, that folks have heard that are, um, you know, that, that control significant proportions of the of the shares of, of um, many publicly listed companies. And so, um, it, you know, it is important where people have um, have, you know, that are invested in mutual funds. Um, that that we send a message that we want to see those those shares voted for climate action and uh, and you know the the default um, with most uh, most shareholders frankly is if if management recommends a vote against a given proposal um, you know most, most people go along with that recommendation and that's why it's important that um, the scientists letter. Uh, signed by more than 1,300 scientists, has actually been submitted formally to the Securities and Exchange Commission as what's called an exempt solicitation. So it's essentially letting, um, you know, letting shareholders know that other shareholders are are supporting this proposal. And of course, you know, there's a huge pushback right now against uh, what's called ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance uh, Governance Investing. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing that uh, companies like BlackRock that had stated that they would be supportive of climate action at the, at the companies that they hold um, walk back those pledges in the face of what is um, really, you know, drastic pressure um, at the state level, for example. Um, and, and, you know, if we look at... at um, what some of the roots of those efforts to prevent voting on environment, social, and governance criteria are. It's really a backlash to successful shareholder action. Um, and, you know, successful shareholder action, looking back a few years where in 2017, for the first time ever, shareholders voted in favor of a climate-related proposal at ExxonMobil. And now we're seeing, you know, fossil fuel-driven and funded um, behind-the-scenes efforts to make it more difficult for investors to align their their voting with their values. Um, we are speaking right now with Kathy Mulvey, the director of the Climate Accountability Campaign 
at the Union of Concerned Scientists. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask Kathy about what people should be doing if they really want to stop the finance of such destructive policies involving fossil fuels. We'll be right back. By the sky and sell the sky and tell the sky and tell the sky Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Voting as well as early voting is the way to go. It shows that we trust the voters. They know why they need an early ballot. They know why they need an absentee ballot. It's not up to government to decide if it's a legitimate reason or not. The voters should get to choose. So this, I think, is a huge advance. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Looking for a fun and competitive day out with friends or the office team? The Junior Achievement Annual Golf Tournament is on Friday, June 9th at Crump and Fox in Bernardston. The day will include many contests, giveaways, food, and more. Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts helps prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through in-school and after-school programs focused on financial literacy, career exploration, and entrepreneurship. To register, visit jawm.org. I'm not sure if opposites attract, but most couples differ greatly in their views about household finances. I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, with Hug Your Money. Money is a very volatile topic, and most seem to either argue about it or rarely discuss it. A sort of division of labor emerges, one partner becoming the steward of household finances, the other less directly involved. This arrangement may work until a stressor is introduced, college expenses, budgeting issues, impending retirement, etc. That's when sparks can fly. Each person's perspective is quite different, and it's likely only a short-term solution if any will arise. The HUG plan presents an easy-to-follow, long-term solution that helps get both partners on the same page, alleviating stress and inspiring them to manage their finances successfully. I'm Francis Ray, I'm the Money Doctor. We now offer advanced tools and financial coaching using our patented system, all under one umbrella. For more information and to schedule your free consultation, visit our website at HugYourMoney.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. This is uh, the week of Earth Day coming up this Saturday, and there's nothing more important uh, to talk about than climate and the destructive nature of the fossil fuel industry. And we're talking about how it gets financed with Kathy Mulvey, the Director of Climate Accountability um, at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And in particular, we're talking about a demand by 1,300 such prominent scientists that shareholders uh, get um, J.P. Morgan Chase to stop financing the expansion of fossil fuel industry and to go into a greener uh, investment profile. I guess my question is, Kathy, um, how do you get shareholders to tip the right way in the balance between personal profit on their investments 
and being socially and environmentally responsible citizens. How do you get them to strike that balance in the right way? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, the, the reality is that um, that finance and investment have such an important play, uh, uh, role to play in the, in the transition to clean energy. And so, you know, the, the companies that are um, sort of stuck in the, in the 20th century and uh, supporting the 20th century energy system rather than the, the transition to a 21st century energy system um, that, that um, you know, will, will limit the worst effects of climate change, uh, it don't have great financial prospects either. And so, uh, you know, what, what, um, what the, the overall recommendations are um, to the, the banking sector based on these findings of the Banking on Climate Chaos report are, you know, to prohibit all finance for fossil fuel expansion immediately, uh, also to adopt um, absolute emissions reduction targets for, for the emissions that they finance. So one of the ways that, that companies um, sort of try to gain the system is by focusing strictly on intensity targets. That is the, you know, the amount of global warming pollution per barrel of oil, for example. But of course, as if, if oil and gas expand is expanding, um, then even even if the impact of a particular barrel is lower, the overall emissions go up. So that's an important metric. Um, and, you know, shareholders really need to be demanding robust transition plans for uh, and banks need to be asking for them from all of their existing fossil fuel clients. Uh, you know, we haven't talked so much about environmental justice and, and, and human rights and the impact on indigenous peoples, but that's uh, another another really vital um, harm that is associated with fossil fuel expansion. And then to really scale up financing for a just and fair transition. So, you know, this this is um, share, shareholders who are especially pension funds that are that are investing for the longer term. You know, who have beneficiaries who want to be able to retire in 20, 30 years down the line. They need to be thinking about the long-term tra trajectory of their investments and of our energy system. That's so well said. Can you give us a sampling of the, uh, the people that have signed this letter, the 1,300 scientists um, that have signed the letter to shareholders proposing this resolution? Yeah, sure. So... Uh, a couple of my colleagues, um, Dr. Rachel Cletus and Dr. Brenda, Brenda Eckworzel, uh, were lead signers on the letter, as it, as were um, Peter Glick, who's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences and a MacArthur Fellow, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson of the Urban Ocean Lab, uh, Dr. Gary Yoey of Wesleyan University, um, who's a longtime senior member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and a vice chair of the third U.S. National Climate Assessment. Uh, so, you know, that's just a that's a sampling, but there are a lot of 
a lot of luminaries who've joined in this call. That's a handful of 1,300, and they're not just activists that are screaming about something. They're scientists that have actually, uh, their career is to understand um, these matter. Yeah, I'd like to know, has the uh, campus, uh, has activism on the campus that has uh, demanded that various boards of trustees uh, eliminate fossil fuel companies from their portfolios. Has that had an effect? And is any of this actually, this direct action, uh, actually affecting the policies of the financiers and the fossil fuel companies themselves? Yeah, I mean, certainly the the um, activism on campuses, the divestment movement, I think it's well up over $40 trillion in combined assets under management that have been divested from the fossil fuel industry at this point. Um, so, you know, these are uh, the the range of levers that, that people have um, to put, you know, to put pressure directly on the on the corporations that are engaged in worsening the climate crisis or enabling the, um, the the companies that are that are worsening the climate crisis is um, you know is, is really it, it, it's, it is it is having an impact I mean we're certainly hearing this is talk the, the talk right with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg hello are you still there Kathy yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was I mean, uh, so we, that was an interloper. Right. <laughs> no, please go, you know, go we're, on. We're hearing some of the right words, right? So you know, we we are hearing from uh, from even the fossil fuel companies claims that they will be uh, net zero by 2050. Now, you know, unfortunately um, for Exxon Mobil and and Chevron, for example, they leave out um, what are called scope three. That are the those are the emissions that come from burning their products, um, using their products exactly as they're intended to be used, which for an oil and gas company is 80 to 90 percent of of the um, of the emissions that they're responsible for. Um, and looking back at the banks, you know, there are, of those 60 banks that Banking on Climate Chaos looked at, 49 ha- um, have net zero commitments. Right. So they say that by 2050, you know, that they um, they'll be their financing activities will be aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement and um, bringing bringing global warming emissions to net zero. Um, Unfortunately, those 49 banks provided 81 percent of the financing to the top 100 companies that were expanding fossil fuels in 2022. And 2050 is 27 years away. And and 2050, uh, exactly. So we uh, this is Kathy Mulvey. You are the director of the Climate Accountability Campaign at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Obviously, you use the word responsibility and accountability, and that's exactly what we're looking for. We need financial companies like J.P. Morgan Chase to, uh, to to join us in combating this dire situation the planet finds itself in. If people want to learn more about climate accountability and about this particular initiative or about the Union of Concerned Scientists and support their work, how do they get in touch with you? Yes, they, they can go to our website. That's ucsusa.org. 
And specifically in relation to the the scientist letter and the lead up to the J.P. Morgan Chase annual meeting on May 16th, we are hosting, along with a range of other organizations, a webinar on Wednesday, May 3rd at noon Eastern. So this is going to be a conversation with shareholder advocates, environmental justice leaders, and, um, and others about the issues that are on the agenda at the J.P. Morgan Chase annual meeting um, coming up next month. Not only important, it is urgent, and we urge listeners to join in this attempt to get finance companies, big banks, to stop supporting the expansion of fossil fuels. Kathy Mulvey, good luck with your campaign for climate accountability, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much. It's great to join you. We'll be right back with Writer's Block with Megan Zinn playing What You're Reading with a sixth grader right after this. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A former Westfield teacher is facing assault charges against a kindergartner. The teacher, Brittany Smith of Westfield, was working in the Autism Spectrum Disorder Program at Paper Mill Elementary School when she allegedly pulled the child to the floor by his hair on January 12th. Two other teachers in the classroom allegedly witnessed the incident. The city superintendent of schools says he's not able to comment on a human resources matter, but did say that the teacher is no longer employed by the Westfield District Schools. Smith was arraigned on April 4th and is awaiting a June 15th hearing. Dr. Vito Perone is speaking out after his job offer as the Stanton superintendent was rescinded. Perone says in addition to using the term ladies in an email, he had been trying to negotiate for an annual cost of living adjustment and more sick days. I didn't intend to take 40 days of sick days. I don't do that. However, I'm 58 years old and things happen. And if we were negotiating, that would be my request. In the intense online outrage directed at East Hampton School Committee after this highly publicized incident, some of the school committee members opposed to Perone's hiring have received threats of violence. Additional police details have been posted outside of some members' homes. On Friday, Erica Faginski-Stark withdrew from negotiations, putting the school committee back to square one in their search for a new superintendent. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation will host a public hearing on Wednesday to hear from Northampton residents about the proposed redesign of Main Street. The hearing will be held virtually on Wednesday night from 6 to 8 p.m. To register, visit MassDOT's website. For today, it'll be mostly cloudy, chance for showers, highs 62 to 66. Tonight, partly cloudy, overnight lows 42 to 46. And the other for Tuesday, partly sunny and breezy, chance for a passing shower, highs in the upper 50s. I'm 22 New Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Remember the joy on the kids' faces when they rode the steamer train? The beautiful wedding in the sanctuary. Eating that rapidly melting ice cream cone by the water spray park on a hot day in July. For almost 100 years, Look Park in Florence has been the scene for weddings, cookouts, concerts, and lazy days in the sun. What do you remember about Look Park? The theme of Look Park this year is I Remember When, and Look Park wants to hear your stories. 
Share your favorite memories throughout the season in the park and online at lookpark.org. While you're there, get your 2023 season pass, only $70 for unlimited days in the park. Consider buying a second discounted pass to donate to a family in need through Look Park's partnership with the Northampton Survival Center or donate directly to Look Park. 100% of Look Park's operating budget comes from entry fees, grants, and donations. Look Park in 2023, looking back on decades of memories and looking forward to creating decades of new ones. Share yours today. Meltdown, the annual spring music and book bash for kids and their grown-ups. Brought to you by The River and Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, Meltdown is at Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield for a day of free family fun. 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. rain or shine. Live music and authors on the Hawks and Reed main stage with Carrie Ferguson and the Grumpy Town Club Band, the Deedle Deedle Dees, and Puppets with Tom Knight, along with great local authors like Sue Fuller, Ty Allen Jackson, and Mira Bartok. Outside on Court Square, the amazing acrobatics of the Show City Circus, Birds of Prey with Tom Riccardi, adorable dogs from Heroes Boarding and Training, and enjoy great local food from Cocina Lupita, Polio Thomas and Bart's Ice Cream. Meltdown, brought to you with the support of Mass General Brigham's Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Saturday, April 22nd, inside and outside Hawks and Reed in downtown Greenfield. It's rain or shine, and it's free. See you there. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Thanks for joining us. This is Buzz, and this is one of my favorite Times of the week Yay. when Megan Zinn uh, on Writer's Block plays What You're Reading. What You're Reading. I think there's somebody in the studio. Is she on Social Security yet? She looks like she's at just, least. Just a couple of years. Well, my guest for What You're Reading I'm going to talk to about what she's reading is is Betsy Gallman. And she is a sixth grader at Wildwood Elementary School in Amherst and a voracious reader, I I understand. And I also have um, here Sally C- Campbell Gallman, who is Betsy's mom, and also a professor of education at UMass Amherst. And we're going to talk to Betsy about what she's been reading and then talk about some bigger issues around reading and, and getting kids to read and maybe a little bit about um, some of the book bans and, and thoughts about that. Um, so to start, Betsy, um, what are you reading right now? What do you think about it? Right now I'm reading a book called Just Like That by mm-hmm. Gary D. Smith. It's really good so far. I'm reading it for an author mentor study in school. Oh, well, tell me what the author mentor study is. Basically, we're reading a few, a few books um, and studying them, and we're going to write a huge thing and make designs. Pretty cool. Oh, cool. Very cool. What do you think of the book? Well, t- tell us a little bit about the plot. Um, the plot. So basically, it's about these two kids, Matt and Meryl. I don't really know how to pronounce her name. Meryl, but that sounds right. Yeah. Um, and so Meryl had a big loss and goes mm-hmm. to this school an all-girls school, and she uh, and she has this thing in her mind called the blank. I, I don't really understand it just yet, okay. but I think it might right. be something like depression okay. or because she's still upset, so she develops a lot in the book, and so does Matt. He has a very interesting backstory. All right, so dealing with some, some heavy issues, it yeah. sounds like. All right. What are, um, what are some of the most memorable books you've read in the past year um, or um, so? I read a book called P.S. I Miss You. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really good. It was an MCBA. What's that mean? Uh, I don't remember the exact words, okay. but I think it's like it's a book that's signed by the state. It might be Massachusetts. Ah, okay. Like mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. MC. But oh, maybe it's book award. 
yeah, I think type so. of thing. Yeah. Um, what what made it memorable? Um, it has an interesting style. It's like an emailing style. Oh, okay. So that made it memorable, and it's basically her writing letters to her sister, mm-hmm. who was um, taken away because some things, different things happened. And there's a whole bunch of twists in the book, and yeah. it's an awesome book. So the modern version of an epistolary, epistolary, epistolary novel, which is a book that's made up of letters. Yeah. Um, but the, the you know, ver- current version of that is emails or texts. <laughs> I suppose you could have a book yeah. that is all texts. Um, so my guests are Betsy Gallman um, and, and Sally Campbell Gallman. And right now I'm talking to Betsy about what she likes to read. Um, well, what do you like to read in general when you get to choose? What kinds of books do you choose? I choose a lot of tearjerkers, if you've oh, probably yeah. heard from what I just said. Interesting. Interesting. Um, do you know what it is you like about that experience? Um, I like the emotions mm-hmm. in it, probably. Uh, kind of catharsis, get, get some um, of your emotions yeah. out of you by l- reading other people's experience. Yeah, it's their their minds are really interesting too, like mm-hmm. how they think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what decisions they choose, and it teaches me more about the world, which is interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it can kind of help you when you read about somebody else's problems and how they deal with them. It kind of gives you some ideas about yeah. you know, how to deal with them. Um, and also, Betsy, um, how do you find books to read? Like, what do you? Um, other than what you get assigned in school, how do you find new books to read? Um, I have a librarian in my school. Her name is Mrs. Wells. Shout out. Um, she She's amazing. She has a whole bunch of uh, really great recommendations mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. She's read most of, like, pretty much all of the books in the library. So I just, so she recommends me a whole bunch of great That's great fantastic. Um, and do you primarily read YA or middle grade, or, or do you not even know what these designations are? Because <laughs> they probably wouldn't be that meaningful um, to you. I probably read a lot of young adult okay. or middle school okay. books. Um, Bill's got a question. Yeah, could you go back to she's read most of the books in the library, <laughs> that part? Yeah, it, <laughs> Librarians are magical. They can do that. Yeah, I, I have no idea how she's done it, but she... She's like, I ask her, I, I don't remember a lot of the names of the books, so I ask her what, I'm like, so this book happens, uh, do you remember its name? She's like, she knows the name, and the author, and she's like, let's go find it. Wow. Well, they are, librarians are magical. And this magical. would be the librarian at Wildwood Elementary, correct? Yes, In Amherst. Yes. We'll give her an uh, extra shout out. <laughs> um, um, what are your sort of favorite books? Do you have some, like? Um, like lifetime favorites. Yeah, I I really got into more books I like this year. Okay. So probably a lot of them that I read. Um, I really liked Orbiting Jupiter, another Gary D. Schmidt. Okay. Um, P.S. I Miss You was great. Mm-hmm. And then, like hey, I said, I'm not very good at uh, remembering the names. <laughs> but last year I read a book. Uh, Might have been called Ray. It was about a. I think I know that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like reincarnation. 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 It was. Ooh. It was interesting. She reincarnated dog. Yes, I have. Yes, yeah, I think I have yeah. heard of this book. I think that's a classic. <laughs> um, and um, again, my my guest is Betsy Gallman. And um, what have you been reading? Do you read? What have you been reading for school assignments recently? I'm in- interested to know what what they're assigning to read in in sixth grade these days. In sixth grade, we don't actually have many. Um, assignments. He really just wants us to take notes on what okay. we're reading. So choose your own yeah. kinds of books. But uh, right now, as I said before, we're doing a mentor-author study. Mm-hmm. So 
uh, just like that is a book I'm reading for it. And then I might read uh, Wednesday Wars, which is another book by him. Okay. All right. Yeah. So can I go back to you love tearjerkers mm-hmm. because you love the emotions that it, what is a tearjerker and, and oh, yeah. yeah, what is a tearjerker? Or your definition. Yeah. I think it's probably like a really um, emotional book that might cause you to have strong, like uh, sad emotions or like, um, anger or something, mostly like sadness coming from the tear. Um, like it's kind of sounds like jerking that tear out of you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. That is what it sounds Maybe like. Maybe some people like reading them because they have a lot of pent up emotions mm-hmm, and it helps mm-hmm. them, uh, take out those emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But kind of. And you know, if you can cry at what's going on in a book, then you can kind of get out with whatever is sort of yeah. stuck inside of you. And yeah. some some have like uh, they help you with uh, what's the word? Um, hmm. Well, we have to take a break, but maybe you can think about that. We'll come up with it over yeah. the break. We're going to come up with that word. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a break. We are uh, playing what you're reading. For Writer's Block with Megan Zinn and with uh, Liz Gauman. And we're going to also talk to her mom, professor of education. Sally, we'll be right back after these messages. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1401-1400-1240. WHMP. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. 
The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. This is the Writer's Block segment with Megan Zinn and a couple of special guests. Yeah, we're back here with Betsy Gallman and Sally Campbell Gallman. And we spent the first half of the show talking with Betsy um, about what she's been reading. And I think the word we were looking for was catharsis, which is a, such a good word. Um, kind of getting getting all those emotions out. And, and, and tear jerkers can help you do that. Um, but we want to talk a bit with, with your mom, with Sally. Um, from your point of view as a parent and also as a professor of education, um, how do we, how do we, let's start with, how do you get kids to be readers? Well, I think every parent wants their child to be a reader. Yeah. I think that that's, that's really, really important. And it's important for a lot of reasons. One, because it gives them the ability to update their brain software for life, but also, <laughs> um, you know, it's a way of increasing our vocabulary with mm -hmm. a capital V, not just words, but life experiences and things to draw from. And it's an endlessly renewing resource. In terms of getting kids to read, I think that forcing it is never a good idea. I think creating a binary between screen time and book time is not a good idea. I think when we make it, it's sort of like trying to get someone to eat their vegetables. Right. Nothing makes vegetables less attractive than being forced to eat them. So I always tell people, you know, to surround kids with good literature. Mm -hmm. So make sure you have a whole bunch of it in your home. Like make going to the bookstore a big deal. Make yeah. going to the library a big deal and let them choose. Um, recently I was told about uh, an elementary school child whose teacher would not allow him to read manga or comics. Uh -huh. I would only allow him to, you know, read the, like the, vegeta the vegetable equivalent. Yes. <laughs> I was like, yeah. you're going to read some broccoli. Um, and, and I get it. I get school and assignments, but you need to get kids to love reading. They need to read what they want to read. Right. And that means anything. Um, my parents had a rule when I was growing up um, that if I could read it, if I could understand the words, mm -hmm. and how I could read whatever I wanted. There was I nothing off limits. And so, I mean, I read whatever I wanted and I have the same rule for my children. Um, Children should be allowed to, to read and to seek what they want. If they want screen time, that's great. Um, but I would try to encourage them to read in the same way <laughs> one might, you know, dig a hole in the forest floor and cover it with leaves and get them to walk across. You want it to be attractive. <laughs> yes. You don't want it to be a forced, a forced march. I yeah. don't know if that makes sense. No, but that absolutely makes sense. You know, that's how I, how I approach it. Yeah, and we're talking with Sally Campbell-Gallman about getting kids to read. Um, and do you have a sense, Betsy, about, you know, what might, I, I think this is probably hard for you and you, your answer might be no, but get a sense of what maybe has encouraged you to read and keep reading. Or does it just feel like that's who you are and you love your books? I think what helps me like figure out what I want to read kind of mm -hmm. is like figuring out like me and who, what I want to figure out in a book like yeah. what makes this book attractive like have some questions or something mm -hmm. that you might like for me I had a whole bunch of different reading phases like in third grade I was going through a lot of realistic fiction but then okay. I figured out that it wasn't the realistic fiction part that was making it attractive mm -hmm. it was the part that there was emotions in yeah. the book that seemed real to me uh -huh. like a real book yeah 
it wasn't all like not real kind of facts. And yeah. yeah, yeah, I can understand that. I want. I'd like to ask you, Professor uh, Campbell Gullman, um, as an as a professor of education. There's all this discussion. We keep hearing these reports coming out of Florida, Texas, and so many other states about book banning, and you're talking about children being able to choose their own. Mm-hmm reading and you think that it's healthy. Well, what are the consequences of denying kids access to so many titles that's happening throughout the country? Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. I can't, I can't think of anything both anything worse or more ridiculous than a book ban. Because let's let's be honest with you, there is nothing more attractive than a banned book. Oh, of course. Nothing. And, you know, they can take it out of the schools, they can take it out of the libraries, but they can't take it off Amazon. You know, they're, yeah. the kids are going to get those books one way or the other. And I just I think it's damaging, not in the ways that we might initially consider. It 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 it's damaging because children are taught that there is some text that is bad, there is some knowledge that is bad, there is something that is forbidden, and it's also teaching them that they don't have the right to make that choice. Yeah. Right. And the parents who maybe don't want their child to read X, Y, or Z, they would do better to have their child read that book and then talk about it with Mm -hmm. them. Read the book with the child. Have the conversation. Talk about your values and where they come from. Model those decision-making practices. Just banning the book is right up there with saying you're not going to be allowed to read manga because I've decided it's not a legitimate text. It's very adultist and very nasty. And, (laughs) you know, children um, are people now. They're people right now. They're not people waiting to be people. They're not people in you know developing. They are people now, and if they can read it, they should have access to it. You know, um, they're not going to be able to to you know keep that knowledge back for very long. And by banning books and controlling what knowledge happens in schools, you end up with the phenomenon that my daughter was actually talking about. She's talking about the difference between the real book, the book that seems real, and the book that maybe is not as real. I think about the contrived books that pe- that adults put forward. Um, for children. Um, and they think, oh, this is a really this is a really great moral tale that will enrich my child's moral fiber. Those are the most boring, ridiculous books. The things that are adult curated are not re- they don't feel real. Yeah. And kids are going to keep looking until they find the real yeah. story and the real information because kids are smart and kids know how to get it. Yeah. So well, book bans, stupid, waste of time, damaging. And that actually leads to my question, which I'm very curious about. I mean, we have, we're fortunate to live in an area where there are very few book bannings, but we can't underestimate it. Um, and especially, you know, around books um, with LGBTQ subjects and books that address racism. Um, but would you know, if you, books were banned in your library, if, in your home, which knowing your family is ridiculous to even suggest, but if they were, would you know how to get access to books um, that were being kept from you? I probably would because uh-huh. you know, like my mom said, Amazon. I have a <laughs> I have a weekly allowance, so I would mm-hmm. I would be able to uh, probably get that. Uh, there's also a library. Yeah. I can walk up near my house, mm-hmm. get it there. Yeah. And then also, I'm sure that even if my parents don't have it, maybe my friends' parents would, there's and I could yeah. ask them for it. Yeah. And yeah, if it weren't at school, I could find it there. So there's a lot of good resources and places. You can find a book, Barnes and Nobles, like yeah, 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 and 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 to have a subver- subversive moment, um, there is also just if anybody's listening doesn't know about this. There are libraries like the book, the Brooklyn Public Library has launched a program called Books Unbanned, which allows anyone across the country between the ages of thirteen and twenty-one to get a free e-card from the Boston Public Library, and that is very much geared towards kids in communities where they really can't get them. And you can also get, I mean, you can read some of those classic books that are banned, things like Of Mice and Men and such, on Google Books. Mm-hmm. Most of those 
things, book, books that are um, in the public domain are, are really accessible online. Um, so um, I'm glad to know that even in sixth grade, you're beginning to know how to find, how to find what you need. Um, Sally and Betsy, do you ever read the same book at the same time and talk about it? Maybe like picture books when we were little, but no. I think during actual... the pandemic we read something, but I have no knowledge of what it was <laughs> before. Yeah. Um, I also have a question because you're you're right at that age where um, I think my kids kind of stopped reading. They were pretty voracious readers, and then around seventh eighth grade, that was when it was harder to get them to read for pleasure. Do you, um, you know, Sally? Do you have a perspective on how to you know keep adolescents reading? Um, which I think seems like the, the the witching years. It is the witching years, and I have two <laughs> adolescents. Um, and one of them is a big reader, and then yeah. the other one doesn't. And so I, at first I was like, well, I'm going to incentivize this oldest child to read. I'm going to say, oh, if you read this book, then I will gift you with this forbidden item or, you know, whatever it might be. But that's not that doesn't create that intrinsic motivation. It's in the same class as yeah. banning the book. Like instead right. of addressing the situation, <laughs> you create these alternative, like, extrinsic structures. Um, so what I do is I just leave it and I keep modeling that behavior over yeah. and over again. Mm -hmm. I talk about what I'm reading. I have books all over that. My house is full of books. Um, I incentivize in subtle ways going to the library and doing things like that because you can't force it, but you can model it. And, and that is the, that is the important thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and being a reader and, and yeah. reading in front of your kids. Um, and, um, do you have any sense just in our last minute of, of how to get them away from screens. Not not entirely, because mm -hmm. you can't, but... The only way to get them away from screens is for screens to become less interesting than ah. the other things going on around them. Banning the screen, Perfect. timing the screen, shutting off the... It becomes a battle, and nobody yeah. needs that. Nobody wants the battle. So I say just make the world more interesting. Find ways, model how much more interesting it is to be doing things, reading things, being out in the world, than to be on the screen. I love that. And, and just to finish with Betsy, do you have a sense of um, what, what other things, anything parents can do to kind of keep their kids reading? Um, what my mom said about okay. making them interesting. Yeah, yeah. The interesting things are much better than the non-interesting. For example, homework, not very interesting. No, not. But you know, if the homework's fun, interesting. Very good Oh, by point. the way, do you very like vegetables? Point. Some. Asparagus, <laughs> great. Mashed potatoes, wonderful. There you go. There you go. Megan's in. Thank you. One more time, introduce the and people my, we've so been My guests to? have been Betsy Gallman and Sally Campbell Gallman, and we've been talking about books. Thanks so much for being here. It was a Thanks blast. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Thank you both. Megan, thank you. And for the rest of you, thank you for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember, walk the walk. On the rainbow tonight, I could see you. My name is Silas Kopp. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. 
Together, we can make a difference. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's a